Chapter 31 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Green's Work in the South. These were dark days for the struggling patriots. The surrender of Lincoln at Charleston, the series of blunders and defeats which the boastful but incompetent Gates had suffered, the intense bitterness of the feelings of the Tories and Whigs in South Carolina, the prospect of any end to the war being very dim indeed, the apparent lack of action on the part of the armies in the North, and above all, the want of money would have disheartened any but the most determined of men. There were not very many men of wealth in America, but a few of these came to the aid of the army with loans of their own, the most notable of whom was Robert Morris of Philadelphia, as staunch a friend of Washington as he was of liberty itself. Some loans also at this time were secured from France, or made by other countries after France had promised to become responsible for their payment. But where so much was required, even these considerable sums were little more than a drop in the bucket. Early in the year 1779, young Lafayette had returned to France, and so eloquently had he pleaded the cause of the little nation that at last it was decided to send to America a fleet of seven ships of the line, and three frigates, and a force of six thousand men. Of the troops, Count Rochambeau was to be in command, and the Americans were to find him a friend indeed as well as the friend in need. Admiral de Tournay was in command of the fleet, and it was understood that all men and officers were to be placed under Washington's direction, and so it was hoped that the irritation that had attended the former relations of the two countries would now be prevented. It was to meet and consult Rochambeau at Hartford that Washington had gone when the plan of Benedict Arnold to betray West Point was to have been put into execution, but the return of the American commander sooner than Arnold had expected had thrown the traitor's plans into confusion and had compelled him to flee for his life. In July, 1780, the French fleet and troops arrived at Newport, and not only were the hearts of the Americans rejoicing at the coming of their allies, but they were cheered by the promise of still more men and vessels yet to come. But the British were yet to be reckoned with, for with their own staunch vessels they prevented the additional troops from setting sail for America, and for a time kept the French fleet at Newport bottled up so that it did not dare to leave the shelter of the harbor. And so the Americans were compelled to rely again upon their own efforts, though the time was soon to come when the French would really be of great assistance to them. In South Carolina the bitter struggle we have described was still to continue, though a new aspect was to be given affairs by the coming of General Nathaniel Green. Like others of the leaders, Green had been so angered by the petty attacks of some of his enemies in Congress that he had decided to give up his place. But Washington, who well knew the true worth of his friend, appealing to his honor and friendship, induced him to accept command in the South in place of Gates, and on the 2nd of December, 1780, Green arrived at Charlotte, and at once took the position. Baron Steuben, who had come with him, was left in Virginia, where Arnold, with 1,600 bitter New York Tories, had been sent to inflict all the damage in his power. 
and as Arnold was intensely bitter himself now against his former friends, the amount of damage he did must have satisfied even the most intense of the Tories or Redcoats. Two of the men who came with Green by the direction of Washington were Henry Lee, Light Horse Harry, the dashing cavalry leader, the able engineer who was soon to prove so valuable an aid to the resolute leader. General Leslie, with 3,000 of the choicest of the British troops, had been in Virginia burning and plundering by Clinton's orders. And as soon as he started for the quarters of Cornwallis, Benedict Arnold had taken his place. And with Leslie's coming and the arrival of other reinforcements, Cornwallis found himself in command of an army of 11,300 well-drilled and well-equipped men. When Green took the field, he had only 2,300 men, and of these, some 1,200 were raw and inexperienced militia. Whatever success was won was due to the ability of the generals and the unconquered spirit of the men in the apparently insignificant little force. And the very first thing Green did was to divide his little army, already too small to face the force of Cornwallis. But Green understood what he was doing, and soon the country did as well. He sent Morgan, with a detachment numbering about 500, to watch the British at Camden and to obtain such provisions as he could secure for the army. Francis Marion was told to bestir himself at the same time in the lower part of South Carolina, and then General Green, with his troops, left Charlotte and marched to the P.D. River, and the war was on. Late in December, 1780, Morgan had sent Colonel William Washington, a dashing cavalry leader and a distant cousin of the great commander, with his dragoons and 200 militia toward 96, where a force of advancing Tories was surprised, 40 prisoners secured, a large number of horses taken, and 150 of the enemy left killed or wounded. Cornwallis, after the arrival of Leslie and his men, had decided to advance into North Carolina and subdue that state also. But the work of Morgan's men made him afraid to leave that daring force behind him. So he soon decided that Morgan must be beaten and the people restrained by this defeat. Tarleton was the man he wanted for this purpose, and so that bold and brutal leader, with eleven hundred picked men, was sent against him. As soon as Morgan heard of Tarleton's swift approach, for whatever his faults may have been, Tarleton was a man of great energy, aware that he was outnumbered almost two to one, and that he was in no condition to meet his enemy, he began a quick retreat. But quick as he was, Tarleton was quicker, for he hardly allowed his men to sleep, so eager was he to push forward, and soon Morgan found that he could not get away. He could fight if he must, however, and fight he did. He drew up his men on a field near the border of two states known as the Cowpens, and placing Colonel Washington and his riders as a rear guard, he stationed the regulars in the second line and placed the untried militia in front, so that if they should be driven back, as seemed probable, they might perhaps make a stand if they should find themselves well supported. Tarleton led his troops into battle as soon as he saw what Morgan had done. The militia did not fire until the redcoats were within fifty yards, and then fell back before the rush of the British. Confidently believing that the Americans were retreating, the redcoats dashed forward. For a time they seemed to gain, but suddenly the militia rallied, and with the regulars made a charge upon the enemy at the same time when Colonel Washington led his little band of riders against them. Surprised and startled, the Redcoats gave way, and Tarleton's legion, 
was also making most excellent time as they strove to leave the field. Many of the infantry were captured, and so sharply did Colonel Washington pursue Tarleton that he himself gave that hated officer a sharp sword cut on the hand. But most of the legion escaped to tell Cornwallis of the Battle of the Cowpens, January 17, 1781, where the Americans killed 110 of their enemy and wounded 229, secured more than 500 prisoners, 800 stand of arms, 100 dragoon horses, 35 baggage wagons, and two standards. What rejoiced them as much as anything, however, was the retaking of the two cannon which Burgoyne had given up at Saratoga, and Cornwallis had recaptured at Camden. The loss of the Americans was only twelve killed and sixty wounded. Morgan, delighted and perhaps surprised by his victory, at once sent the prisoners with the militia toward Virginia, and then followed with the rest of his men. But Cornwallis, angry and determined, was speedily on his track, and then such a chase followed as has seldom been heard of. Eleven days after the Battle of the Cowpens, Morgan's men had just crossed the Catawba when Cornwallis appeared on the opposite bank. A hard rain kept the British general from crossing, and for two days he waited for the swollen stream to subside, but by that time the prisoners were too far away to be followed. Morgan had called out all the Whigs of the region to his aid, and was preparing to fight the British should they try to cross the river. But on the last day of January, General Greene himself suddenly appeared in camp, having ridden 150 miles to lead Morgan's men to join the rest of the army. When Greene tried to prevent the British from crossing, the militia failed him, and the redcoats were soon on his side of the river and in swift pursuit, for the armies were so near that the van of one and the rear of the other were often in sight of each other. The wily Greene, almost as great a fox as Washington, led his force across the Yadkin, and again, when the British tried to cross, the rain descended and the floods came, and they were compelled to march far up the river to a ford. It is no wonder that the Whigs of the region were cheered and declared that Providence had held back the Redcoats. Green kept on his way and at Guilford Courthouse joined his army. Cornwallis was now desperately in earnest. He had failed to scatter Morgan's men, but he hoped to cut off Green before he could get back into Virginia and at the same time cut off the reinforcements that it was understood were marching to aid Green. The American general, as his force was so much smaller than that of the enemy, did not desire a battle, but he did wish to keep Cornwallis back if possible. So he ordered 700 men, among whom were Light Horse Harry Lee and Colonel William Washington, to bother the British. And bother them they did, and so successfully that when at last, with his usual good fortune, Green arrived on the bank of the Dan, he succeeded in securing all the boats there and crossed the river once more just as the van of Cornwallis's men appeared. The river was too deep to be forded, and there were no boats to be had, and the position held by Green was strong, so Cornwallis marched on to Hillsborough. The retreat of the Americans had been for more than two hundred miles, and forty miles had been covered in the last day. What the army suffered, no one can portray. At Hillsborough, Cornwallis tried to get the Tories to join his forces, but the Tories were not quite so much in evidence as formerly they had been. However, several companies were formed and marched toward the camp of the British. Tarleton was to meet them on their way, 
but Light Horse Harry Lee and Pickens with some of their followers had learned of the movement, and within a mile of Tarleton's force, at a place known as Bloody Pond, they fell upon the Tories, the most of whom were Scotchmen, and many were killed or taken. Some of those who escaped were met by Tarleton's legion, who had heard the firing, and mistaken them for Continentals were again fired upon by their own friends. No wonder it is that that Tory force came to be spoken of as the Lost Regiment. Late in February, Green crossed back over the Dan, and for three weeks devoted his time and efforts to cutting off the supplies of Cornwallis, and to avoiding an open battle. And in both efforts he was very successful. At length, about the middle of March, Green, having been reinforced by the coming of militia until he had about 4,200 men, took a position at Guilford Courthouse, where the ever-ready Cornwallis met him with a veteran force of 2,400. The engagement was fierce, and for a time the raw American militia did nobly. But after an hour and a half, when the Redcoats seemed to be cutting off the possibility of a retreat, Green ordered his men to leave the field, where 400 of their comrades had fallen, and more than 600 of the British were killed, wounded, or missing. Cornwallis claimed a complete victory in his Battle of Guilford Courthouse, March 15, 1781, and soon issued one of his favorite proclamations, in which he offered to pardon all the rebels who would return, and called upon all loyal subjects of King George to assist in restoring good government. If the British did win, it was a peculiar and costly victory, for within a few days Cornwallis departed from the region, leaving nearly 80 of his wounded soldiers and officers behind him. Green had thought Cornwallis would fight again, but as soon as he learned that the British were departing, he changed his plan and began to follow them, which must have seemed like a very great relief to him. But Green stopped when his army came to Deep River, though Cornwallis kept on until he arrived at Petersburg, Virginia. Quickly changing his plan and course, General Green rested his army, let many of the militia go home, and then on the 5th of April started on a swift return towards Camden, South Carolina, where Colonel Lord Rawdon was in command of the British force, which had been left there. Francis Marion, Pickens, Lee, and various other leaders with their quick-moving bands were sent into different parts of the state to cut off supplies for the British, to attack numerous small posts they had established, and in general strive to keep the redcoats scattered and to inflict all the damage on their enemies it was within their power to do. By the 24th of April, Green had led his army to a place within a mile of Camden, but, as he was not strong enough to attack Colonel Rawdon, who was in command of the British force there, the American general tried to get Rawdon to come forth and give him battle. Ready for the fight, the Redcoats started forth, and on the morning of April 25, 1781, began to attack Green's little army, which had been posted with great care on Hobkirk's Hill. At first the advantage seemed to be very decidedly with the Americans, and Colonel Washington had secured about 200 prisoners. But then, for some unaccountable reason, two of Green's companies began to give way, and soon, in spite of all that the leaders could do, the entire army was retreating, and the British had won the victory. The Americans were moving back in fairly good order, however, and had a few prisoners along with their ammunition and stores, but the Redcoats kept following until about four o'clock in the afternoon, when Colonel Washington with his horsemen charged upon the British cavalry, and by scattering them put an end to the fight of the day. Each army had lost about 250 men, 
and though the redcoats had won, they were in no condition to follow up their victory. However, when a few days passed and Rawdon had been reinforced, he tried to surprise Green by attacking his camp at night, but when he came close to it, he thought better of his purpose, and his army went back to Camden, where it remained until the 10th of May, when Rawdon set fire to the town and departed south of the Santee. The scattered bands of the Americans were now doing just the work that had been expected of them, and post after post fell before their attacks. In this way, Orangeburg, Fort Mott, Nelson's Ferry, Fort Granby, Silver Springs, and other little garrisons were taken, and though the victories in themselves were not important, they helped to keep up the courage of the Whigs and also kept the Tories and Redcoats in a constant state of alarm, as they did not know where next these hidden foes might appear. Augusta, or Fort Cornwallis as the place was then called, fell before the united attacks of Lee and Pickens, and Francis Marion compelled the Redcoats to abandon Georgetown. General Green with his little army laid siege to 96, where Colonel Kruger was in command of the 500 British soldiers holding that fort. Aided by Kosciuszko, they erected batteries and dug mines till they were within six feet of the walls of the fort, and were confident that the long siege would be speedily ended. But just then word was received that Rawdon with strong reinforcements was coming to the aid of the sadly beset garrison at 96, and Green knew that he must either assault the fort at once, or leave the region, for he had too few men to hope to stand before the oncoming British. An assault was therefore determined upon, but though the Patriots fought desperately, the attempt failed, and Green began another of his famous retreats that seemed to injure the British more than their successes in the field could do them good. And Green began another of his famous retreats that seemed to injure the British more than their successes in the field could do them good. Rawdon was close by when Green's men started from 96 and turned to pursue them as far as the Honoree. Then, believing that his foe had left South Carolina, he divided his force and left a part at the Congaree. Just as soon as Rawdon did this, Green instantly changed his own plans and advanced. The first information that Rawdon had of the whereabouts of his defeated foe was the news that within a mile of his camp, Lee had cut off a foraging party and with forty captive horsemen had succeeded in rejoining his leader. This was almost too much, and Rawdon straightway marched his men to Orangeburg. Green, however, was close upon him, and on the 12th of July tried to draw him into battle, but Rawdon declined and instantly sent word to 96 for Kruger to come to his aid. General Green tried to prevent the approach of Kruger's soldiers, but failed and then after crossing the Watery and Congaree, collected his entire force of 2,000 men, and instead of continuing a retreat, resolved to attack. The British moved back and took a position about 40 miles from Charleston near Utah Springs. Green was in no condition at the time to take advantage of his enemy's backward movement, but after Francis Marion had joined him, with his hardy men, it was decided to attack the British on the following day, September 8, 1781. The American forces were very skillfully arranged by their able leaders, and when they were on the march, they drove before them the British, who had come forth from their camp. The fight soon became general. Though the British at first had been driven back, they made a stand near a large three-story brick house, and though the Americans fought desperately, they could not dislodge their foe. 
hand to hand with guns clubbed the soldiers had fought but the stubbornness of each side was as great as that of the other and at last unable to drive the redcoats the americans withdrew to the nearest place where water could be had and the british declared that the battle was theirs in one sense this was true for they had not been driven from the field but in killed wounded and prisoners they had lost more than eleven hundred men while the loss of the americans was only about half that number at all events on the following day the redcoats hastened back to charleston and their anger was shared by all their tory sympathizers indeed the hatred of the tories and whigs was now fearfully intense and many were the evil deeds they inflicted upon one another one of the most celebrated of these deeds was the hanging of colonel isaac hayne a man respected by all the people of the state he had been made a prisoner by the british at the siege of charleston he was then serving as a private in the ranks and they had permitted him to return to his home on parole on the condition that he should not again take up arms in this year seventeen eighty one however he had been told that he must enter the british service or go to charleston he did the latter and was then informed that unless he would declare his allegiance to king george and take up arms for him he would be cast into prison there was severe illness in his home and upon being informed that he would not be compelled to serve in the king's army he agreed to the proposition and then hastened to his home soon however he received word that he must enter the king's army he thought if the british had broken their promise he was not compelled to keep his so he entered the army of the patriots instead was soon taken prisoner placed in irons given a mock trial and condemned to be hanged his friends his little children the ladies of charleston all begged that his life might be spared but in vain remarking calmly quote, i set out for immortality unquote. he was led to his death august tenth seventeen eighty one by his brutal captors his murder only served to increase the rage of the people and throughout the state such deeds followed his execution as cannot even be described. End of chapter 31